This episode is sponsored by Metrio. Tired of all the effort required to build your ESG report? Use the Metrio sustainability reporting software to save time and money, allowing you to focus on what matters. For more information, please visit metrio.net. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the best of this week's Verge Electrify Conference, Saul Griffith's bold plan for creating 25 million electrification jobs, Mary Nichols on the future of mobility, and how to ensure that the benefits of electrification reach everyone. We're plugged in this week on 350. It's May 28th, 2021. Welcome to another edition of Green Biz 350. Heather Clancy's off this week, but in her stead, I'm thrilled to welcome the co-chair of this week's Verge Electrify Conference, my charged-up colleague, Sarah Golden. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Joel. Happy to be here. So uh, we're recording this actually on Wednesday, and the, the uh, conference has just ended. So, Sarah, I know you've worked, you and Katie Fehrenbacher, your, your uh, co-chair, worked so amazingly hard to put on a really terrific two days of programming. How's it feeling? Really, really great. It's I've been so amazed with how the program came together and all of the speakers that came after this. I'm thrilled with how the first event went. And the community too, which is I think really what makes these events obviously. Uh, but not just that they showed up, but they showed up um, uh, and participated in the networking sessions, but also in the chat and the Q and A. I was really, I'm always really impressed at our events, and equally so at, at this one, how much people really participate. And, and I guess it speaks maybe the fact we've all been cooped up for so long, but 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 even before that, just the hunger to engage with others on these really, really important topics. Yeah. And I'll say with this specific event, we also made this one free. And what we generally see with our free events is in addition to our normal audience of all of the corporate sustainability and energy leaders, we also see people who are earlier in their career and people that are wanting to get into the sector. And because of that, it created this amazing community of people at all these different levels wanting to figure out where to get involved and really this, this energy to try to move this, this movement forward. Yeah, and that's what makes these events work so well. So what we're going to do right now is I'm going to talk to Sarah a little bit about the event and some of the takeaways. And then we're going to place a few clips that our colleague Deanna Anderson has queued up and uh, call it an episode. Um, so Sarah, let's start off with the basic context. Why uh, an event on electrification? Well, Electrify Everything has really emerged as this unifying principle, this heuristic within the movement to decarbonize. And if you wanted to summarize um, what we need to do to address climate change in as few words as possible, it's sometimes put as electrify everything, use clean energy, 
as little as possible or not too much, you know, to sort of quote the Michael Pollan um, uh, basis for how to boil down a movement in a few words. So within Electrify Everything, it's just the most essential part of addressing the climate crisis. And that's because the power sector is, um, we have a lot of the solutions we already need to decarbonize the power sector. And that's what makes it important to do it as soon as possible. That's not to say it's the only thing we need to do to address climate change, but we won't make it unless we decarbonize the power sector immediately in every way possible and to get off of fossil fuels as soon as possible. So part of the reason why this event what came at what feels like a perfect time is because we need to be accelerating that and we need people to be making the decisions today to use all electric appliances into the future. And so that means the next car you buy, the next uh, the next machine that you buy for whatever facility you're working with, the next water heater you buy, all of those should be electric because it will be around for the next couple of decades and the fuel you put into it matters. So the decisions we're making today go into the future. But we still have a long way to go to make sure that we're able to make all of those decisions today, which is really what this program focused on, trying to figure out how to be accelerating the opportunities and the solutions within all of the options we have. And don't forget uh, your stove, your induction stove. That was an important part of this. We had a really terrific demonstration uh, by a chef. What was her name? Rochelle Boucher. Extolling the virtues, really, of induction heating versus gas heating. Uh, induction heating is, is an all, obviously an all-electric technology. And it was funny. I was watching the chat, and she's talking about all these different things that you can do as well or better with induction uh, cooking, stovetop cooking. And, and someone was saying, yeah, but what about my wok? And you need a flame for that. And, you know, a minute later, she's saying, yeah, and here's wok cooking. We could do, we do that even better, and it works just as well or better. I, I really, uh, I thought that was really brought it home about the fact that the, a lot of these technologies are here, and, and obviously we need the, the financing mechanisms and the policy mechanisms to spur them. But there's also habits, you know, that we all think, I, I do in my home, we have terrific gas range and I love it and do a lot, you know that's I wouldn't I wouldn't cook on anything uh, else although next one is definitely going to be uh, all electric because I'm beginning to understand that it's not just the way I've always done it and always loved doing it that's the right way to do it that is actually some better ways now and I think that's the key takeaway is that these things have succeed these transformations in technologies these changes of habits when they are deemed to be better in some fashion, cheaper, easier, higher quality, obviously better for the environment, which isn't necessarily the driving force, but that can be a tiebreaker. So uh, yeah, it was really interesting just to understand how uh, all these different changes, what, what the changes are, and then and, and thinking about how we, they take place. But let's get into this. There were, there were three key sectors that we got into this. And let's take them in 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 reverse or well the in order of the most developed to the least developed. And the the, the three sectors are, are are applications really are transport, building and industry. Uh, and so let's talk about transport. That's electric cars everyone knows about, but what's the the key issue there that you saw that that we need to be looking at and that the conversations centered around this week? 
Yeah, and I, um, I'm going to get into se- sectors in just a moment, but I want to say one point about what you just brought up with electric induction cooking, because it is such an important part of moving towards electrify everything. And the reason we focused, uh, focused on it in the way that we do is because people have an emotional connection to their stove and it's in their house, like you just noted. And change is hard. For the most part, people don't really care about their water heaters, but they do care about how they cook. And one thing that we're noticing is that people don't like to be told that their opinion is wrong. So it's a really tough thing to be approaching people and say, this thing that you think you like, well, there's something you might like better. That's not a very persuasive way to be persuading people to to move to an all-electric appliance or make an all-electric choice. And so I think that the theme, if I were to summarize uh, the Verge Electrify keynotes in a single word, it would be inspiration in the, in the sense that the people who were talking about these technologies felt inspired by them and wanted to share that with other people. So it's not seen as just a sacrifice, but something you can really be excited about. And within transport, we see this also. It was a, with passenger vehicles, there are so many choices now for all electric vehicles. And of course, the last week, uh, the Ford announced that their F-150 is going to have an all electric model. And it sort of feels like this watershed moment of the, of the cars that you want to have are now available all electric. And when people drive them, they like them a lot because there's amazing pickup and that it's incredibly cheap, but that doesn't make it always easy. And there's gaps right now, especially when it comes to things like infrastructure and making sure that we have the uh, ability to charge where and when people need it. And that was another pretty active debate within our chat as we're talking about these different, these uh, passenger vehicles that are all electric of people saying that they still have some hesitation around the ability to charge in the way that they need to, to use their car the way they're used to. So that's a huge part of this. And Within that EV infrastructure, there's also um, a necessity to be thinking about how that connects to everything else. Your car, an electric vehicle, is essentially a big battery, and you're driving it from your place of work to your home to your friend's house. And that means that it is being plugged into the grid and the electric system in a way that is entirely different than the past. So one of the sessions focused on how can EVs be a resource to the grid and what will that actually take? What kind of models need to exist in order for people to be comfortable with their car being a resource for the grid? And what will it take to have the technology to plug your house into your car in the event of, say, an extreme weather event that makes it so that there's an outage in your region? So the as you noted of these three sectors transport is the furthest along and that's the, that's shown in how many programs already exist from utilities to companies to fleets that are looking how at how can we become completely electric immediately of course within transportation we haven't solved everything and so the other focus within this was how can we make sure that we get heavy duty electrified as soon as possible? And what are the opportunities to electrify those? When you say heavy duty, what do you mean by that? The heavy duty trucks, the semis Uh that, and and the the things that we just don't have um, the 
electric alternatives that do the same thing as our diesel and gas powered vehicles today. And it's also a challenge with shipping and aviation and really any application that demands a very high flow rate or high energy density that fossil fuels do very well today. And one of the solutions for that could be something like green hydrogen which is hydrogen that is created from water through uh, the process of electrolysis powered by renewables. So it's possible to make it so that hydrogen is carbon free. And there are several types of vehicles that run off of hydrogen today. And so that could be one application of green hydrogen. So there is also a session that was looking at where does green hydrogen fit into all of these different applications, especially where we don't have good electrified alternatives. Yeah. And and back to the Ford F-150, which is, of course, the best-selling vehicle in America. I mean, this really is a, it's, it's another Tesla moment in, in a sense, is that what Tesla did, it was not the first electric car, but it was the first electric car that got a lot of attention because of its incredible on-the-road performance. And he was, at the time, it was even it was a $100,000 car. It wasn't even something most people would buy. And later on, they'd come out with a sixty or 80000 and then they got it down to forty or fifty. Um, but I think that's the thing that turns heads. And now with this F-150, the Ford's best sell, uh, the best-selling vehicle in America of all types of, of trucks and, and, and uh, minivans, crossover sedans, and all the rest, um, to have that be electric and to have uh, it's called the lightning. It's got a cool name. I, I think is one of those uh, those changing moments. And then the other was the uh, Mustang, the Emax Mustang. And there was a Katie opened the day two of the show on Wednesday, uh, driving around on that while she was talking about the, the what's going on. And I think that's another one. The muscle car, the classic muscle car, the Mustang is now electrified. And I think we need more of those iconic everyday or every every person kinds of 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 not just vehicles but devices and and maybe the stove for for other types of of consumers. Uh, that's what's really going to, pardon the expression, drive this much further, much faster. But let's get over to the the second part of this. We talked about transport, but uh, what about buildings? So what's the conversation about the electrification of the built environment? Yeah, this was a really interesting one to build out, um, meaning that the, the sessions that we created within this track, and that's because GreenBiz focuses on the private sector primarily, but a lot of the conversations around the electrification of buildings is happening in the residential sector. And it makes sense that we're having these conversations within the residential sector because you need to get consumers on board and they're the ones that are making these decisions about appliances that will lock us into a fuel source for the next 30 years or so. So within this, when I was reaching out to people trying to form these sessions, everybody was ready to talk about residential and less ready to be talking about the commercial side of the equation. And so it felt like uh, uh, we these conversations are very early on when we're talking specifically about commercial buildings. So we had conversations about the future of commercial buildings. And I loved the way people talk about this because buildings and 
people that are passionate about buildings and the architects don't see themselves as, you know, just building some edifice. They're building where we live our lives. They're building the backdrops of our cities and the where we really exist inside of. And so it really informs so many aspects of our lives. And a lot of that conversation focused on how can we create a better world through the next generation of buildings. And it touches on fundamental things about being human, about how healthy we are and how happy we are and how effective we are in living our lives. So I love that view of thinking big about the opportunities of the buildings of the future. And then, of course, most buildings we, you know, building stocks is already around. And so we already we also had a session that looked at what does it take to retrofit existing buildings to make them all electric and specifically commercial buildings, which is a very tough nut to crack because often the people that own the buildings aren't the same people as the tenants within the buildings, whether they're commercial tenants that are renting office space or retail space or or restaurant space. So how do you figure out who starts that conversation of electrification, then how do you pay for it? How do you move forward when there's sort of a split incentive? And we often hear tenants saying, there's no appetite from my real estate developer to do this. And the real estate developers that are looking at decarbonizing their buildings are saying, our tenants have no appetite to be paying for any of these renovations. So where do you begin? Yeah. And, and another factor is the lease, the terms of the lease is typical lease called the triple net lease includes utilities payments in that so the, within the monthly payments of the lease. So there's no real incentive for the, the tenant to do much in terms of, of energy efficiency or energy conservation. As you said, the incentives are not very well aligned. But but I'm going to stick with the technology and go back to the residential piece. Um, a lot of these technologies have been around a long time, uh, electric stoves, electric water heaters, things like that. Uh, what's different now that's that's sort of enabling this push to electrification? Is it the technology at all or is it uh, more on the, the policy side or, or where is the driver? Well, I think both of those are a driver. As far as technology goes, the technology has gotten so much better. So part of what we were just talking about electric induction cooking, part of what makes it such a tough sell is because everybody thinks about those those terrible coil Oh, you know, those coil electric heat um, things. It's like the first crappy yeah. apartment you ever lived in. I had. remember those. Yep. Or your it's radiant like, heat. It's like a like, glorified hot plate. It's they're so hard to control and they're just they're they take forever. And so part of the challenge with electric induction is that's what people think it is. When electric induction, it creates this magnetic connection with the with these coils within the system. So the heat is actually generated inside of the pan instead of with on the top of the of the heating unit. And so it's this um it's this almost futuristic thing where the pan itself heats up and nothing around it heats up. So one of the things we did in the demo during the keynotes today was Rochelle Boucher put a $20 bill on the yeah. stove underneath a pan that was boiling and that's fine. You know, it doesn't burn, nothing happens to it because the heat's just being generated inside of the pan. And that also makes it so when you move to the side, you're able to just immediately wipe it up. So cleaning up is a breeze and it's not creating all of these like particulates that are like, that can be harmful to people's health. So with when it comes to items like that, it's a world of difference of what people are used to uh, back in the day. 
Then when it comes to heat pumps and water, water heaters, the efficiency of new electric heaters is really incredible. It's like three to four times the efficiency of natural, their natural gas counterparts. And so it's able to do a lot for less, less fuel which can ultimately be a tremendous amount of savings too. When it comes to things like water heaters, it's for the most part, you know, like I said before, people don't really care about why their water is hot. They just want to make sure that it is hot. And so with those, it feels like less of a push to get people to, to make that transition, but they need to know about it. And so there's a big education gap. And what we're seeing right now is a lot of municipalities moving towards um, restrictions on natural gas hookups. And that, that takes a variety of different forms, sometimes in the form of you can't have new natural gas hookups to buildings that to new builds, and others where you know, you you're not able to if you're doing a major renovation, then you are needing to not use natural gas for that too. some places that are just restricting it, you know, by and large. And so there's different ways, different ways of that, that looks. But that's sort of this push in the pole between technology and the policy. Yeah. Well, what about on the commercial building side in terms of where the technology is? You're saying on the uh, residential side, it's just it's, it's there now and it's getting better all the time. How about the uh, commercial side? Yeah, well, with the commercial side, it's um, it's a very different when you're doing a new build versus a retrofit. And when the part of the challenge with all of this is when buildings are set up to have natural gas, it's a pretty intense way for the the plumbing to be done in a building to have the natural gas run to where it needs to be, especially when you're talking about these big office buildings. And so there's a there's technology is there um, to be doing this transition with the similar to the residential sector, while it's there, it's not the most common thing that's on the market. So you need to know that it's there and you need to be seeking it out because your average architect or your average contractor isn't going to know about that as an option. And if you go to like Home Depot as like a just a regular consumer, you may see like one or two electric water heaters versus 30 gas water heaters and the one or two electric water heaters are also more expensive right now. So there's sort of a lack of exposure overall. And then there's a lack of um, education to know that even though it's maybe more money up front, that can actually save you money in the long term. And also it's just, you know, it seems like a new scary thing that you're not familiar with. All right. All right. Well, let's move over to the third bucket <laughs> industry, the the electrification of, I guess, manufacturing. Uh, talk a little bit about what's going on there. Yeah, so this is the one that is least mature out of these three sectors. And when it comes to electrifying industry, really what we're talking about in the, uh, when we're talking about industry here is all of the companies that make the materials that make the things that are used everywhere in life, from the cement that you see in your sidewalks to the steel that are building the bridges around you to the microprocessor and your cell phone. So it's all of the things that make the things in our world. And part of the challenge with industrial decarbonization is that the emissions are buried in supply chains, meaning that the companies you're buying things from are buying these materials from other companies that you probably haven't heard of. And it creates a sort of chain 
where it's hard to be applying any pressure to decarbonize. So as a consumer, if I want to be buying something that is, you know, made of greener or cleaner products, I only have this, the consumer facing company to be communicating that to. And they often aren't, don't have the options from their buyers to go cleaner. And there often isn't an appetite for people to pay more for cleaner products, even though they say they will. So because of this, there's been less innovation within this sector. And so we have a long way to go to have the technologies there and through that, the markets to be able to buy things from. And so all of this requires a lot of coordination between the buyers, meaning the companies that are buying materials and the producer of those materials, and the policy to make sure that we're able to really be moving the needle on this. Because if you know if you have one steel producer that's making green steel, and you're not requiring people to buy it from it, then companies that are sensitive, that are price sensitive, are just going to go to a cheaper producer of that steel. So we need the policy to make this pre-competitive to start this process of decarbonization. Wow. That's a great uh, recap of of the week. But before I let you go, are there some cross-cutting themes uh, across all of these things, transport, buildings, industry? What did you hear that sort of ties this together? Yeah, well, one of the things that came up for me is how necessary it is for these different sectors to be working together. And in some ways, they're so distinct. And the problems and the challenges surrounding them are so different that they should be three different conferences. But in reality, the way that this will put demands on the grid for clean electricity and the need for us to be moving quickly demands a kind of collaboration between all of these key players. So we're talking about the companies that are procuring different materials that are in buildings that are moving their their um, products around to consumers, but then also the policymakers that are setting the rules of the game, and the customers and the NGOs that are providing the system by which they can be acting as as collective buyers to create these kind of buyers clubs. So it's not just bilateral uh, communication. So it. It makes it so this entire challenge is um, needs an ecosystem to be moving forward, and we need to do it really quickly. And the other big takeaway I'd note is around the conversation with equity. And this was something that was threaded throughout our conversations, throughout the sessions, and throughout the main stage, where these solutions need to work for everyone in order for them to work. And a lot of the sessions focused on the idea that in the long term, this will save money. But if the upfront costs are too much, then that doesn't do much for people because it's making it inaccessible to communities that have already been ignored by so many different advances within clean energy. And so there's conversations about innovative financing and how to make sure we can get all communities access to all electric and clean appliances. All right, so that's um, two. Is there a... Uh, any more? A third one? Or <laughs> well, I was <laughs> I was mentally splitting up the finance piece from the equity piece because one thing I'll say about the finance, and this is a good setup, and we're going to hear a clip from Saul Griffith, is that um, it's especially hard for low income communities to afford the upfront cost, but 
it's hard for everybody to be making these choices about upfront costs. And the way that Saul talks about this is to reframe it from this is a cost to this is an investment, because ultimately this will save people money. And he's, he has mapped it out to show how it will save families thousands of dollars every year. But if all you're looking at is it will cost me $40,000 to do all of these upgrades, then that feels prohibitive. So to be thinking about innovative finance ways so that we can spread out the cost of that investment, not unlike we have with mortgages, where we can be accelerating the uh, the electrification of our buildings and our transport and our industry and still be saving money because we're looking at it over the life of the machine instead of just how much is it going to cost me right now. Wow. Lots and lots and lots to do. And great topics, great sessions. Congratulations on putting this together along with uh, your, your co-chair, Katie Fehrenbacher. Sarah Golden is Senior Energy Analyst and Verge Energy Chair at GreenBiz and the co-chair, as I said, of this week's Verge Electrify Conference. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you, Joel. As we said earlier, our colleague, Deanna Anderson, senior editor at GreenBiz, has picked some of the main stage segments from the uh, first day of Electri Verge Electrify. Deanna, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It's been a great time learning about uh, how to electrify everything. Yes, it has. It's been very uh, fascinating. I've learned a lot myself. So uh, what have you queued up for us? So the first clip that I'm going to share is with Saul Griffith, who is the founder of Rewiring America. Um, and in this clip, he talks about radically demystifying uh, what decarbonization is. And be prepared, listeners. Um, there's a lot of numbers that are about to come at you. We're going to radically demystify what decarbonization is really going to mean. 730 million tons of coal is mined in the U.S. every year in 669 coal mines in giant trucks. We have hundreds of giant coal loaders that transfer that into tens of thousands of coal cars that are pulled by thousands of diesel-powered locomotives on 140,000 miles of freight rail to bring all of that coal to 241 coal-fired power plants where we burn it, not very efficiently, to make electricity. We have 27 trillion cubic feet of natural gas that we drill in 300 to 400 offshore rigs we supplement it with another million, which is astonishing, dotted across the landscape natural gas wells. We connect that with 320,000 miles of natural gas distribution lines, including 121 LNG terminals where we ship and receive large amounts of bulk gas. We store it in 400 underground facilities, which we use to iron out the daily variations and the monthly and annual variations. And we feed all of that to our 2,000 gas-fired electricity generators, which make a lot of our electricity. And by putting it in 1.3 million miles of gas distribution lines, we get it to all of our homes. Many of you all recognize this. 69 million of our homes has one. It's a gas meter. Three million of our commercial buildings have one. And on the other side of that meter are the demand-side machines that use all of this fuel. 58 million natural gas furnaces or heaters, space heaters, 56 million gas water heaters, 18 million gas dryers, 35 million gas stoves, 6.5 million gas cooktops, 2 million gas ovens, 
nearly 2 million hot tubs, 1.5 million swimming pools, 69 million barbecues. So many little blue flames that we now know are harming our children, affecting our respiratory health, and uh, aren't particularly good for the environment in any way. Which brings us to oil. 7.1 million barrels, 300 billion gallons. That feeds 250 million vehicles in our garages. They're recognizable, 25% of them are cars. Half of them now are SUVs and larger crossover vehicles. 20% of pickup trucks, 5% of minivans. We have 8.5 million motorcycles to boot. They're fed by 150,000 gas stations, which require 100,000 tanker trucks to provide a constant feed of oil to them from 135 oil refineries that take raw oil and convert it into gasoline and to diesel for our machines. 224,000 miles of pipeline connects those refineries to our 960,000 wells and to the 63 oil tankers flying under the American flag. Now we know what we have to do, 50% carbon reductions by 2030. This is an astonishing statement, first science-based climate target by a major nation, and uh, I'm proud that we're going there. This is what we have to do. Um, it brings our net zero targets forward in reality to beat two degrees from 2050 to 2045, and really we should be aspiring for 2040. It's doable, just barely, and that'll give us the climate our children deserve. What are we gonna do? We gotta retire all of the machines I just mentioned to you in the next 20 to 30 years. Tankers, refineries, oil wells, tanker trucks, pipeline, gas stations, offshore platforms, coal mines, coal loaders, the whole lot. They need to be retired, recycled, and retrofitted. You can already hear the earth recovery. You can already hear your children breathing more easily. Okay, that was intense. A lot of numbers, you're right. Uh, what's next? So next up, we hear from Mary Nichols and Michelle Fozier, um, who are both part of the Commission on the Future of Mobility. Um, and basically, it starts with a question from the executive director of that organization, Allison Malik. Um, and she asked them what it takes for EVs to be mainstream. Uh, you'll hear from Mary Nichols first. What do we need to make EVs more mainstream? Are there policies, technologies, collaborations, or any collection of the three that you think would help to bring EVs more into the mainstream? Sure. Well, I think it's all of the above, although I would say this week's announcement and unveiling by Ford of the F-150 truck and their all-hands-on-deck approach to making it a successful commercial vehicle in the marketplace, marketing it to cities and to fleets and to commercial users of all kinds. This is the biggest selling vehicle in the United States. And so the fact that Ford is all in on the electric version of it, I think in and of itself is a mark of being mainstream. But um, I like the word blossoming about what's happening out there in terms of making electric vehicles a real and mainstream, because it seems to me that it does take everybody uh, beginning to think in EV terms without it having to be only a mandate on the part of the air regulators, of which I myself have been one, and I'm not in any way shying away from that, but I feel that we did our job by sending the message to the entire world, and particularly to the developers, that these vehicles were going to be required. Now the time has come for the transportation planners 
and the designers of buildings, the architects, the urban design gurus, the people who are worrying about other forms of transportation, including walking and biking, to plan for the reality that EVs are going to be a part of that mix and they need to be, uh, a place needs to be made for them. I could maybe add up one point, which is really crucial for me. Uh, I do believe that affordability is the essence of mainstream development. And cost and cost and cost and price is something that's going to be really necessary. And uh, we are technology providers who are really working in order to make technology affordable. Uh, I do believe that would be really the, the turn of the technology in the next uh, months, years to come. Uh, because if we want to go mainstream, we cannot just have a high-tech technology, which is high cost, that will be reserved for happy fuse. We need really the, all the people to go for it. And for this, we need the kind of Ford T uh, concept that could be going to be deployed everywhere and for everybody. Maybe Shell is exactly right. I, I want to just uh, double underscore that line that uh, availability of vehicles includes affordability. And we saw we saw what happened with solar, for example, when the price came down, suddenly it wasn't a question mark anymore um, if people were going to put solar in in new construction. And I think we're beginning to get to that point. We're very close to that point, at least uh, with electric transportation as well. Okay. And you have one more. Yeah, so as you just heard, um, Nichols mentioned that part of what it will take for EVs to be mainstream is also thinking about equity. There was a session during Tuesday's program about putting equity pretty much front and center when thinking about EVs. Um, so in this clip, we hear from Jacqueline Patterson, who is the Senior Director of the Environmental and Climate Justice Program at the NAACP, about what it means to electrify everything and what should we what we should be doing now to make sure that equity is included in that we do get to a place where we electrify everything in this transition what should we be doing now my concern is always that we wait until it's over and then we get started what should we be doing now as industry um and, and as well as consumers now to see the kind of end game that we'd like to have yeah so we talked a lot about community-driven participatory planning. And one thing that we do need to, to make sure that people understand is what this is, what it, what it means to electrify everything. What, so I think um, certainly consumer community education is important because if we talk about inclusion, then we, we want to make sure that people are, are equipped to be able to, to fully participate and be decision makers in the new energy economy. So for us, that's, that's critical, making sure that, that we provide the pathways and the mechanisms for community involvement and, and input design and decision making around this major shift that's, that really is going to change everything. So again, like you said, we don't want this to happen to people. We want people to be driving this, this transition and to really see that this transition is better for us all. And, and, and then with that, we also have to establish, you know, community-driven principles around this. So what, what is, what are the priorities that we want in this? Again, uh, availability, affordability, um, clean, clean processes and so forth. So, and how do we prioritize and, and make sure we have a hierarchy of, of what's critical in this electrification process so that, again, 
It's not something where uh, where the needs of the community and the rights of the community are at the bottom of the of the pyramid. Great. Um, any last uh, takeaway impressions that you had, Diana, from this week's event? I mean, something that was surprising <laughs> uh, with Saul's presentation is during the session, he had a lot of different illustrations and he's actually turning those into a coloring book, which I thought was fun. Um, and you can get that on rewiringamerica.org. But also, I think that since my beat isn't electrification or anything, I've just been really fascinated to learn about what people are talking about. It's a it's a new thing for me. It's a new thing for a lot of us. So, uh, well, thanks for picking those. Deanna Anderson, Senior Editor at GreenBiz. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Joe. Hi, this is Heather Clancy, Editorial Director of GreenBiz. On May 17th, GreenBiz published its sixth annual 30 Under 30 list, highlighting a rising young cohort of intrepid startup founders, tenacious corporate innovators, and determined public servants. I invite you to meet all of these inspiring young professionals by reading the report at greenbiz.com. But we're also sharing more insight into what shapes their professional dreams with audio highlights from our interviews over the past two months. Last week, we heard from three of these individuals. In this episode, we meet another trio. Listen up for perspectives from Chris Dowd, who's with the Strategic Partnership Team for Social Impact at Google, Francesca Goodman-Smith. She's the Transform Program Leader for the Fight Food Waste Co-op Research Center, and Adrian Johnson, Associate Engineer for Point Energy Innovations. Listen up and be inspired. Hi, I'm Chris Dowd. I work in strategic partnerships at Google focused on crisis response to sustainability and, and helping our users be delighted and informed around all things relating to the planet. Okay. A lot of work in the environmental justice realm as it relates to, to our Google products has been underway for well before I was in this role. But I would say the core principles of it are at Google's founding, you know, it was always about making information accessible and useful. And part of information being accessible is being able to really understand the context in which users and communities are engaging with these products. So that could mean to, to what degree is a user in, in one country or, or one particular neighborhood being affected by a new climate-related event that might not be, be um, felt in the same way in San Francisco. So we always take a very um, global lens in that sense. And the other, the other aspect of that is kind of the how is we co-develop a lot of our products with, with local partners and, and with governments in some cases to really deeply understand what do people need that are using, for example, a wildfire mapping product in the North Bay of California might be dramatically different than how one might use it for, for bushfires in, in Australia. And same goes for, for our flood forecasting initiative. You know, the riverine floods in, in India are not the same as riverine floods in Bangladesh and the digital penetration is not the same. And the you know administrative leaders in country do not have the same kind of capacities and 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 so we really work closely with with our partners on the ground to make it as useful as possible and i would just back up one second so just before i i joined this this team at google i was on a on a fellowship through google.org working with with watt time and the kind of early genesis of climate trace 
And I think one thing that really inspired me there and kind of technology as a, as a vehicle for equity through that project really um, resided in this idea of like, how can remote sensing be a tool for, for equity in, in both carbon emissions monitoring and just generally emissions mapping at, at, the, at the asset level overall. So historically in the US, you would have had to develop massive at-site infrastructure to monitor the emissions of coal, coal plants around the world. And that would have been the, the data that the country was relying on for state, local, and federal policy. But as we get a little bit smarter and savvier with, with, our, with our satellite infrastructure, but also with our machine learning and artificial intelligence, and heat sensor recognition and all these kinds of um, innovative tech that are, that are coming online, we can really leapfrog that infrastructure investment, which is a huge, in most cases, upfront capital investment on behalf of governments. So um, that's a really, really exciting thing when you, when you think about how AI and remote sensing can, can play a role in, in equity as it relates to climate mitigations. Hi, I'm Francesca Goodman-Smith. I'm the Transform Program Leader for the Fight Food Waste Cooperative Research Centre. One of the like major issues with food waste is that it's really heavy to transport and it usually gets put into really low value uses just because that's the easiest thing to do, like whether it goes to landfill or gets composted or anaerobic digestion or, any, or fed to animals. But if you could have like a network of hubs that food waste goes to and then it gets you know it can be sort of traded and transformed into new food products then you can just keep it's like creating a circular economy for food where you've got yeah you're you're setting things up regionally so it's creating jobs and it's creating kind of local ownership over these products and the system uh, but you're able to connect it with something much bigger and wider and yeah just a systems change where resources stay in use. Hi, my name is Adrian Johnson, and I'm an associate mechanical engineer at Point Energy Innovations in San Francisco. And I leverage energy analysis and mechanical design every day to create decarbonized buildings. Almost every project that I have worked on and that my firm works on is an all-electric design. And the way that we get the design team or the developer owner to decide to do that is is by showing them the cost effectiveness of it. And there are a few trade-offs, like one in particular is like, for example, the building envelope. We typically recommend a, a very well-insulated, high-performance envelope with you know high high quality, low E glazing, and that is a little bit higher price up front, but you see essentially a cost transfer out of your HVAC system into the envelope because those improvements reduce the can reduce the size of HVAC equipment that you need because you're you're eliminating the load. Especially in the Bay Area, a lot of times if we have a really robust envelope, particularly for residential projects, you can you can actually eliminate the need for cooling altogether. So that's a major savings right there. 
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned. While you're there, check out our seven free e-newsletters. You can learn about them at greenbiz.com slash newsletters. As always, we welcome your comments, questions, and tips. Our email address is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Thanks again to Sarah Golden for stepping in. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by Metrio. Metrio is an all-in-one sustainability reporting and analytics software that simplifies the collection, analysis, and communication of your ESG data. For more information, please visit metrio.net.